Some of you might have seen the online Bible project that we posted with this series, and it started, if you listen, do you hear the first sentence? The book of Leviticus, we know you've been avoiding it because it's weird. (laughs) How's that for a start? And we put it online even. It was actually well done. But kind of interesting start, isn't it? I've had more than one sideways glance as I've talked about this series and no small consternation myself. But there is indeed a grand canyon that separates our world from the content of the third book of the Bible. And the response of many Christians seems to be something along these lines. Leviticus is Old Testament law. It has nothing really to do with us today. It deals with animal sacrifices and skin diseases, with house mold and Jewish festivals. It's largely irrelevant to our lives as Christians today. It's a relic. It's interesting on some level for some, but it really has no place in our lives. No use. And the unstated conclusion seems to be, don't bother with it. Why? I mean, really. Why would I read Leviticus and choose not to read Hebrews? Why bother with that endeavor? Leviticus is indeed a challenging book. But let me say also that this book plays an enormous role in redemptive history. It's huge. And I ask you, as we struggle sometimes as Christians to say, why Leviticus? Why would I read this? How do you know that Jesus is Messiah? How can you be sure that your eternal salvation comes through the sacrifice of Jesus as the only mediator between God and man? How do you know this? Certainly there's the internal witness of the Spirit, and certainly the New Testament says as much, but how can we prove that what the New Testament claims and what I think I experience is real? That this is God's plan. I don't think you can do it apart from the book of Leviticus. How can we be certain that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that He is the Lamb of God, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, and the very center of redemptive history? You can't do it apart from the book of Leviticus. God's revelation to Moses in Leviticus functions to identify Messiah as God strings together type and anti-type, preparation and fulfillment, if we will, but he strings type and anti-type together, linking them across the redemptive ages such that no individual could be writing the script. Only God could do this. So in this vein, Leviticus is an exquisite gift from God to his people. It is hallowed ground, a point the Hebrews widely recognized. But we struggle to see. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. And this is, by the way, the introduction to the introduction. So hang in there. 
Lots of introduction today. Prepare yourself. But let me illustrate it this way. In northern Minnesota, there's a mountain. A lot of people smirk, but it's Eagle Mountain. It's the highest elevation in the state, and it's pretty wimpy. I mean, you can get up there quite quickly. But what a view. It's beautiful up there. Now, if you've ever been on that trek... You'll walk with me here, but there's certain things as you go back to it, and I've gone to it a number of times, you kind of begin to see, yeah, this is, there's one way up. Now, I know literally there's not one way up, but there's really one way up there. And as you start that journey, you see this signpost that says Eagle Mountain. And then you're walking through this really dull, boggy area, and then you see this sign entering boundary waters. And then if you've been there before, you begin to see things that you recognize, the lake on the right and the gnarly roots and the rocks, and you begin to work your way up to Eagle Mountain in a gorgeous summit. As far as the eye can see, there is absolutely no sense of civilization, just of nature. It's beautiful. But as you see those signs, you see the sign, even the things you remember, the footbridge and the bog and the lake and the like, you say, this is it. This is it. This is the way up. This is the way to that beautiful view. How can you know, in application, how can you know that Jesus fulfills the Mosaic law unless you know what he's fulfilling? Like the hike up Eagle Mountain, Leviticus is a crucial early signpost. Yes, it's in a boggy area. Yes, it's not very beautiful here in some respects, as we've been up to the summit. But sometimes in our doubts, it's good to come back and say, is this really the summit? People can say to us, you're not really there yet. It's over there. It's over here. This isn't the highest point in Minnesota. You don't know. And you say, well, are they right? Is Jesus really Messiah? Is the beauty that I see here what God intends? We can't know sometimes unless we go back to the beginning and begin to work our way up and say, yes, this is the way. And there can be no other conclusion as we come to understand the book of Leviticus. Let's bow in prayer. And we're going to have to ask the Lord's help. It's going to take some work. But may he bless this church as he gives us this opportunity in this series. Lord, together we come now before your word. We thank you for it. We give you praise for what you have done through redemptive history, and we are reminded again and perhaps even rebuked how quickly we can turn away from what you have prepared for us to see. Help us to see it. Open new vistas to our understanding of Jesus and help us to be enthralled with what we see in the message of salvation in Christ There may be some among us who do not know that salvation. 
And I pray that you'd bring them to it in your grace, that you'd open their eyes to see it. And for those of us who know Christ, I pray that this would be a journey in which we draw close. That we would see you for who you are. And that we would rejoice together in the access that we have to your presence. It's through Christ that I pray. Amen. What was lost when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden as punishment for breaking God's law? What was lost? They lost a breathtakingly beautiful place. They lost a weed-free, painless, deathless world. A world untainted by relational sin. They didn't even know what it was for one person to harm or wrong another. But what Adam and Eve lost above all else was the presence of God. Paradise was only paradise because God was there. God created the universe as His house in which His people would find the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in fellowship with Him. Creation was no end in itself. The garden was no end in itself. It was the presence of God that was all important. But from that day forward, God began a slow, meandering effort to restore His presence with man. We see the end of this goal. We see many of its indicators along the way. But we see the end of this goal in Revelation 21. As the Bible comes to an end, John writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. If you've read through the Bible and you come to this place and go, oh wow, isn't that nice? You're not catching it. This is it. This isn't nice. This is it. This is the whole thing is to dwell in the presence of God and live to tell about it forever and ever. Notice here the emphasis again. The dwelling place of God is with man. That's it. That's what the Bible's aiming at from start to finish. It works in that direction toward this specific blessing. And that leads us in the Bible to the book of Genesis where God elects Seth as the family line through whom Messiah will be born. He identifies that family. The promised one will come from this line who will crush Satan's head, Genesis 3.15. But this will be no quick an easy mission. We learn this quite early, don't we? Those first chapters of Genesis 1 through 11, one rebellion against God after another. We have Cain's city that is established. Then there's Lamech, and then there's the Genesis 6 and the rebellion against God that leads to the place where he wipes everyone out in judgment except for Noah's family. Then it gets all better, right? It doesn't, does it? Then we end up at Babel in Genesis chapter 11, with this rebellion against God. At Babel, a tower is built to invade the heavens. Think of that. To invade the heavens. I don't think they're trying to reach it physically. As I say, they could throw a rock up into the air and see they weren't going to reach it. But they went up into the heavens to invade the presence of God. Why? To find Him? No, to make a name for themselves. God comes again down in judgment. 
Reaching up to the heavenly realm for the glory of man's renown on earth is what human religion is all about. But in contrast to man's kingdom building efforts in defiance of God, God calls Abram who builds not proud cities, but humble altars of sacrifice to the Lord. And with Abraham, particularly on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, a pattern of worshiping God through sacrifice is established. But Genesis ends with God's chosen people, Abraham's offspring, journeying south, and they become sojourners in Egypt. This leads us into the book of Exodus, where we find the Israelites eventually enslaved there by Pharaoh. And God then comes to deliver Israel and He wrecks Egypt in order to free Israel from bondage so that Israel can worship Him in the desert. This is a statement over and again. Why will you leave Egypt that you may worship Me in the desert? God says. And you remember, integral to that deliverance is Passover. When the death angel passes over the Israelite homes as and sacrifice is offered and the blood is smeared on the posts the doorposts of the Israelite homes, and God passes over them, delivering Israel that night. Passover then becomes a major festival for Israel to remember that she was redeemed by God from slavery. This is her identity. This is God's working with His people. And following His miraculous deliverance of Israel through the Red Sea, we find that in Exodus that the Israelites journey across the desert to Mount Sinai, and in its new sense, God is with them. Coming in this glory cloud, leading them to Mount Sinai, He is in their presence in a unique way. This theme of God dwelling among them is beginning to be realized. Eden is beginning to be restored. And that leads us to Mount Sinai in the desert. God descends here to the top of the mountain. You remember that scene, lightning and thunder and a great sound like a trumpet, irritating, almost nauseating. And as the mountain shakes, there is fear and dread. What does Moses do? At the command of God, the invitation of God, he ascends up into the cloud, ascends into that frightening place where God's presence hovers on the mountain. Other leaders of Israel are permitted to ascend halfway up the mountain, but the Israelites may not even touch the mountain or they will die. So holy is this place, you can't even set a foot up this mountain without God killing you on the spot. It wasn't God being mean. It was God being God. He can't be anything else. And in His holiness, the sinful nation could not approach Him. And this was the message that He had to send to His people that He had chosen to demonstrate to the world who He is. Only Moses is permitted into God's holy presence. Let that set in. Only Moses, the mediator. He enters the cloud on the pinnacle of Mount Sinai. He communes there with God. He even enters into the cloud for 40 days and 40 nights and so feeds on God that He needs no food or water. And He hears from God. And He seeks the Lord there. 
And here God gives Moses the designs for a tent. And again, don't say, oh, isn't that nice? The dwelling place of God is with man. I want you to build a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. There are two things that will happen there as God instructs Moses on the mountain. God will dwell in the midst of his people. The Israelites know that God fills the earth. He is spirit and he is everywhere present. But God will objectify his presence there among them. He will dwell in their midst. This is good news. Secondly, at that place, Israel will approach God in fellowship. Israel. Moses will remain the mediator. The Aaronic priesthood will continue to guide the people in, but the people themselves will be able to come to this place and meet in the presence of God as He dwells with man. They are indeed His people. He is their God. God provides detailed instructions for a tent of meeting then. Meanwhile, as we say back at the ranch, we know what's going on, don't we? All kinds of horror. There is Israel at the bottom of the mountain while Moses is up there with God. They say that he must be gone. We don't know what's happened to him. They're all antsy. And so, Exodus 32, Aaron, God's priest, his chosen mediator, is leading Israel in gross idolatry. Like at Babel, Genesis 11 the Israelites are artificially manufacturing the presence of God among His people. We're going to get that presence on our terms. Creating a golden calf, they worship there in gross idolatry. As with the flood in the early chapters of Genesis, God proposes to wipe Israel out. Moses, you will become a new Noah. And I'll start again. I've done it before. I can do it now. This nation needs to be destroyed. I need another people, and I'll start that people with you. We know what Moses does. He does what a mediator does. He stands in between God and the people and says, No, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people that you have chosen, go with us. Don't abandon us. Moses only can stand in God's presence. And as he does, he mediates God's Word to God's people, but he also mediates for God's people before the Lord. Representing Israel, Moses succeeds in securing from God his presence among the Israelites as they now journey to the Promised Land. And what we learn is that without the presence of God... The promised land is no land at all. Better life in the wilderness with God than life in the promised land without Him. And indeed, then, a tabernacle is built. In God's mercy, He permits the project to go on with this people. The tabernacle is built with all of its furnishings, each furnishing having a very significant connection to the creation order, to the Garden of Eden, to the purposes of God. But all we have time for here is this point, 
God descends from Sinai. God's presence on Mount Sinai is transferred, so to speak, down the mountain and into the tabernacle. So that, as some have called it, the tabernacle becomes a portable Sinai. We can't take this mountain with us wherever we go. We need to journey to the promised land, but we want God to be with us. God says that I will go with you as my people. And so this portable Sinai, this tabernacle, now becomes the dwelling place of God among His people. Morales puts it this way, it is an architectural embodiment of the mountain of God. Also noting that the altar on which sacrifices will be offered is essentially itself a little Mount Sinai, flaming at the top, this hump, as you come into the tent of meeting, into its territory. Now with all of that, let's come to the end of Exodus. If you make your way there, Exodus 40 and verse 34. Exodus 40, verse 34. All of this now in view, the significance of God dwelling with His people, God on Mount Sinai now coming down into the tabernacle, then, verse 34 of Exodus 40, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was in it by night. That is the glorious presence of God shielded by the cloud glowed from within the cloud at night. This in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. They could see God. They could see His presence, His representation here on earth. And somebody certainly by this point, is saying, wasn't this a series on the book of Leviticus? Are we ever going to get there? Why do we go through all of this? Verse 35. Did you catch this? I don't know if you've read this and thought, isn't that kind of odd? It says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it. What's odd is that Moses, the mediator, is not able to enter into the presence of God because of the cloud. He's just been on Mount Sinai. He was in that cloud. He was in the midst of something a lot more earth-shaking than this tent, but he can't go in because of the presence of God. It makes no sense. If this tent is now the dwelling place of God, why is this tent not the meeting place with God? That's what Leviticus answers. 
And that's why if we crack open at Leviticus 1.1, we go, wow, that's a really bad introduction. I mean, here's what we have. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And we read that and say, Yeah, so what? We don't offer sacrifices today. I really don't need to hear this from God. But when we see the dilemma, why is Moses not in the presence of God? Why is the dwelling place of God not the meeting place of God? Now what God says starts to make sense. And it's really, really important. And we see that there at Leviticus 1.1, the emphasis on God speaking. The Lord called and He spoke, saying, all in verse 1, communicate what I'm saying to you to the people of Israel. So where do you perceive God here? He's in this tabernacle, speaking from this cloud that separates Moses even from His presence, and He says, tell the people about sacrifice. If we gain just this, it's helpful. The Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses in the Bible are to be read together. They're one unit. And when we see it this way, we see the connectivity of this unit and we see what Leviticus is addressing. But Genesis, we have a journey from the promised land at the, book of the, at the end of the book and it's leading to, to Egypt. In the book of Exodus, we have a, a, a travel narrative there as well. There's a, a distinct travel narrative in Genesis at the end, getting down into Egypt. And there's a distinct travel narrative in Exodus as to we're traveling to Sinai. Where do we go in Leviticus? Absolutely nowhere. But Numbers, there's another significant journey narrative taking the people of Israel from Mount Sinai, they take down the net and they head out toward the promised land. Deuteronomy, there's a movement now at, or at least a presence, back at the promised land. From promised land to promised land, no movement in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is hallowed ground. It is in the presence of God. It is largely God speaking to His people. They're not merely being led from place to place, and there's, of course, much more in these other books than just that, but that's a major part of the narrative, not Leviticus. Here, we're at the feet of God. And as this graphic illustrates, there's almost a sense in which Leviticus is at the top of the mountain itself. Here we hear directly the words of God. Here we learn who He is in a unique way. Certainly have learned so much of Him as Creator. We've learned so much of Him as He smokes on Mount Sinai. His presence, the smoke, the fire, the terror. But here, God comes to His people and says, Here's how you meet with me. It's hallowed ground. 
God now speaks not from within the cloud on the top of Mount Sinai, but from within the cloud that fills the tent of meeting. So now objectively dwelling with his people, how can this tent of meeting become the place of actual meeting? God is in the house, that is wonderful news for Israel, but how can Israel fellowship with a God who is there? How may a nation of sinners, and that's quite fresh in their minds, from Exodus 32, only recently removed from cowering fear at the base of Sinai, how can this nation enter the presence of God? It is no small point that Leviticus starts with sacrifice. Talk to them about killing animals in their approach to me. And again, we can say, well, okay, enough, uh, we got it. It's, but you know, why go through all the ritual sacrifices? We understand that. We know where it leads. We were past that. Remember the Eagle Mountain illustration. What we're looking at here are the early signposts. We're looking at the way. And we're confirming here that this is the way. Secondly, the ritual worship of Israel is to be seen as an enacted drama that is intended to instruct us in the nature and the will of God. So it's, it's, it's pointing us in the right way. It's showing us that we're on the right track. But it's also a drama to be taken as a drama. I don't know about you, but I don't think there's probably anybody here, like it's certainly true of me, if you, you watch a movie, you don't watch a movie and go, that's not set in my time. That's not practical and useful for me. That's not helping me become a better father or husband or worker. Or it, it doesn't relate to me. It's a different time, different place, different people. I don't even know these people. So why watch the movie? I mean, nobody thinks like that. It's a drama. You understand it to be a drama. Maybe we all ought to wake up and realize it is teaching things, whether we know it or not, and we should be able to identify what it's teaching us, but we don't sit back and go, hmm, what does this have to do with my life? We figure that out later, don't we? As we come into the book of Leviticus and we talk about sacrifices, we're watching a drama. Take it in. Just smell it. See it. Stand there. Be there. That will have an effect upon us far more than we know. What folly to look at this and say, got nothing to do with me. Let just set it aside because I don't offer animal sacrifices. And by the way, if you do, please talk to us after. You've got issues. But it's a drama. Get into the drama. We do drama here in our worship of God, don't we? Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, it's a drama. There's nobody coming to the Lord's Supper saying, at least around this part, wow, I'm really hungry tonight. Glad it's Lord's Supper night, right? I mean, you're going to go away disappointed. I don't know how you get smaller than they've got got us here, but that's not anybody's fault, by the way, but just, you know, the culture. I mean, I can almost taste it not coming because it's a meal to fill my stomach, am I? 
And I'm not lost about the symbolism. I'm saying there's a drama here. It says something much more than what meets the eye. Think of a British coronation ceremony of some royalty. There's no power. There's no real ultimate influence there, no authority there, but every button, every inch of lace, every sword, shield, and crest, it all has history. It has a meaning. There's a drama going on here, and the more you understand the drama, the more meaning it has. Approach Leviticus that way. Your redemption hinges on this drama. The first three chapters we enter then, as God says, talk to them about sacrifice. He speaks over and again, and he talks to them about bringing this sacrifice to the Lord. It says to us right away that sinners cannot decide on their own how to approach God. They must approach him on his instructions. Do you, do you remember Shambu was here a few weeks ago and he's teaching his granddaughter to announce that when he comes out of the room down for supper that the king has come? You know? well, why is that funny? Because it's funny. Is he serious about it? We'd be having him see some professionals or something. I mean, he'd have a serious problem if he was serious about that. We don't teach our children to approach us with certain announcements and protocol. But that's because our children approach us as a sinner approaching a sinner. When we approach God, that's not the deal. We approach a holy being. And there is nothing in this earth that we can grasp to really help us fully gain that concept, what that means. Because we don't know anyone who's holy. When we look in the mirror every day, what we see there is one who is in sin, broken, by the fall. But God, as a holy God, sets up a way. It's necessary. He says, speak to them, verse 2, and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, so much in that word brings. He brings an offering. The Hebrew word actually means when one approaches. Yeah, he's bringing it along. He's carrying it. Don't get the idea of just carry, but it's approaching me. When one draws near to me, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, now just notice verse 3, there's herd. Verse 10, there's flock. And verse 14, there's birds. All of these being what is called a burnt offering. That is an offering entirely consumed by the fire. It's the most basic, the most common type of sacrificial offering. It's not particularly oriented to specific sin. 
but it's just this is going to be given to God and consumed. That might be a cow. Pretty significant, large animal. Verse 3. If it's from the herd, then you shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. There's two things here. First is that you're going to select an animal for sacrifice. That means you're going to choose one. You're going to make the decision this one's fitting. You can cheat. You can know this one's going to die. You can know this one has some malady. Maybe the priest won't see it. Or you can try to bribe the priest, and the priest might be in on it and let you get by with this weaker animal. But your own heart attitude will be displayed in the cow that you choose from your herd. And the character of the priest will be displayed as well, because under pressure he could be sort of pressed to say, oh, we'll let this one slide in. But you as the offerer and the priest as the one offering that in your place, both must collaborate together to say this is a worthy sacrifice. And we're going to burn it all. It's going to be entirely consumed in the flame. And before that, as we come to the place of death, laying his hand on the head of the burnt offering, as he does that, it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The Hebrew word here for lay is is to lean with considerable weight. Now The idea may be a symbolic transfer of sin onto the animal. That's been my understanding of this rite for some time, but perhaps a better argument could be made that transferring sin onto this animal is not what's particularly in view here. Otherwise, the blameless, unblemished sacrifice would suddenly become very blemished. So if there's some truth in that, it may not be directly sin transferred, although a sinner offers it, but what it is above anything else, and then what is obvious, is identification. You're leaning your weight on this warm wool hide, whatever it is, the hide's been stripped of its cow, but... You're leaning there on this animal. And it doesn't say when they do that. There's a lot of things we don't know, but what we do see here is that it makes atonement for him. Verse 4. To satisfy the anger of God against sin and thus to cover the sinner's guilt before God. So the animal substitutes for or stands in the place of the sinner. The sin in view here is more generic in nature as there are other sins that deal specifically with breaking God's law and coming to Him as a sinner in that way. So it's simply the baseline sacrifice for man as sinner. Verse 5, Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons and priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The throwing of the blood against the altar consecrates it, the altar, It may have parallels to smearing the blood on the doorposts of the Israelites' home at Passover. At any rate, it made it very clear that only through the sacrifice of life could sinners approach God. Did you hear that sentence? 
Only through the sacrifice of life can sinners approach God. This is the way. And in the drama, how important for us to filter that truth and sense it and see it. Verse 6, Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. A food offering you're not going to eat. But this body consumed rises with an aroma to God, translated from a cow into this smoke that ascends to heaven. And likewise with a burnt offering from the flock. Now we have a smaller creature, a little bit less expensive, from the sheep or the goats, verse 10, he shall bring a male without blemish. We see the connectors again. I've emphasized this in the first point so that we won't do that here. But he'll kill this on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar again. Verse 12, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Put yourself in the scene. Think of it. Now, thirdly, with this burnt offering, a bird. This allows anybody to come. They're able to capture a bird or pay that limited price to purchase a bird. Even the poor can come and offer to God or you because it's convenient or you're offering a lot of sacrifices recently. You can come with a bird. He'll bring the bird, his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. I don't know what a turtle dove is, but I'm assuming it's not a turtle that flies. But uh, two types of birds. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the sides of the altar. He shall remove its crop from its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place ashes, So the crop, those feathers, will be ripped out. And he shall tear it, verse 17. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It's a lot there we don't understand. There's symbolism in it that God doesn't even share with us. But there it is. We come then to grain offerings. Uh, let me stop and say with these animal offerings, this is very costly. Meat was a luxury. Offering a cow was very expensive. In fact, if you owned a cow now and offered a cow, it would be very expensive to you, even in this culture of where food is so abundant. But it was very costly, and it was on God's terms, an unblemished male sacrifice. We come then to grain offerings, chapter 2, when anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and he shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil and all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this at its memorial portion and its memorial portion. 
as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, but the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and for his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Here there is an eating of this grain. We're not told the distinct purpose of the grain offering, but it's appropriate, less expensive. It would seem to celebrate the harvest and God's provision. And when, verse 4, you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. It doesn't say why. There's not to be leaven, all kinds of conjecture, but it's to be a certain type of bread according to God's will. And if your offering, verse 5, is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. It shall break it in, you shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil, and you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar, and the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and for his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering, sustaining the priesthood, being a cause of celebration in the presence of the Lord. Now, verse 11, no grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. For you shall burn no leaven, nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. And if you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, here's the harvest and the emphasis, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering, and the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all its frankincense, it is a food offering to the Lord. And then there are peace offerings, verse 3. If offering is a sacrifice, a peace offering, to offer an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. As with the other sacrifices, verse 2, he shall lay his hand on its head of this offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons and the priests shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. We've seen this. From the sacrifice of the peace offering is a food offering to the Lord. He shall offer the fat covering of the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering which is on the wood, on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. A peace offering being a sense of fellowship. It's voluntary whenever one so desired. It is more festive in nature. Part of the animal is offered. Part of the animal is given to the priest. Part of the animal you eat with a family, with friends, in celebration. It's more festive in nature. And if this offering, verse 6, is a peace offering to the Lord, an animal from the flock, male or female, shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. What's he do? We know. The herd, now the flock. Laying the hand upon it. Verse 8, 
The blood thrown against the altar, verse 8. Then, verse 9, the sacrifice of peace offering. He shall offer a food offering to the Lord. We see its fat removed, cut off close to the backbone, just like has been said, down through verse 11. And if the offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord. The same, his hand upon it. The same dealing with the innards and with the body, the carcass, and also where it goes. The priest, verse 16, shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. It's food offering, not for God, for you. All the fat is the Lord's, though. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood because the life belongs to God. The whole sacrifice, even though you eat some of it. Bear with me. I know this is a lot. Give me just a few moments and I'm working to axe things here. But let's bring it to a head. As far as the drama goes, this is high impact. There's no other way around it. To modern suburbanites who are really convinced that meat comes from the grocer in the cooler, this is almost unimaginable. Your hand touches that warm, woolly body of the victim. You feel the lamb's body shake as its throat is slit. You feel its life slip away. You hear the flesh cut. You hear it pulled apart. The slithering, slapping sound of the entrails. You hear the crackle of the fire and the sizzling of the meat. Your nostrils fill with the aroma of the burning wood and the meat grilled on the altar. Smoke blinds your eyes as it rises to heaven. You watch the proceedings with arrested focus, the whole dismantling and preparing and firing of this animal who's dying for you. Dying because you're a sinner. It's quite the drama. You don't forget it. A substitute animal dies in my place. And because of that death, you're now eating in the presence of God. And you're living to tell about it. In this drama, we see the horror of sin. Sacrifices consumed every day on Israel's altar continued to say, sin is horrid. It results in death. There was an immense amount of time and hard work and money. Our sin is a devastating, destructive attack against the moral order that God has established and the sacrificial system would let no one forget it. Secondly, we see in this the danger of God. Americans don't like those words. God is dangerous. As much as He is loving and gracious and kind, and He is. God is lethal to sinners. We get that here. Mount Sinai touched the foot of the mountain on which God's glory resides and you die. Here an animal dies. Now I rejoice to acknowledge that there is much more to God than just that, but there is that. Sinners do not go skipping into the presence of God with carefree, selfless, self-confidence. 
They come with a certain kind of sacrifice. They kill the sacrifice a certain way. They prepare it a certain way. They follow God's protocol. And he has protocols. He graciously reveals them to us, but it behooves us to know what they are and to honor them. The fear of God is all over these chapters. And then the wonder of substitutionary sacrifice. It's a growing aversion to this very theme in our Bibles today, even among those who claim to be evangelicals. Maybe epitomized in the 18th century Friedrich Schleiermacher's statement, we cannot say that Christ fulfilled the divine will in our place or for our advantage. He did not fulfill the divine will in our place or for our advantage. That's a Jesus acceptable to our world that many are defining out of the scriptures. That's not the one we see here in Leviticus 1 through 3. We're not going to get there through these chapters. One reason that Schleiermacher gives that Jesus' death was not atoning was that Jesus never said it. That could be argued, but from these chapters we can say God said it. And he says it over and again in the New Testament. Because of your sin and mine, we have no right to stand in the presence of God. We have no right to gain a reception with him. The wages of sin is death and death is coming for each of us. But there is sacrifice. There is a sacrificial system we've considered today serving as a dramatic pointer to the final and perfect sacrifice for sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's sinless Lamb laid down His life in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of their sin. Here we smell it and hear it and see it. Here we see the signs that point us that way. One died for all. That those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them in our place. And Christian, let's celebrate all day long and for the rest of forever and for our infinite advantage. There is a sacrifice. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Every priest stands, says the author of Hebrews, daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified.